grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis. Today I have a co-host, Tommy Ng. Hi, how's it going, everybody? And today we're talking with Jess Bates at the University of York in England. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Otis and Tommy. Hi, Jess. Hello. So, Jess, what is the main focus of your research? What questions most interest you in archaeology? So, my main focus is really the Mesolithic period, so the Middle Stone Age, dating to roughly 9,650 to about 4,000 BC in Britain, but obviously that does vary depending on which country you're, you're looking at. Um, and my current research focuses predominantly on the early Mesolithic in Britain, which dates to roughly 9,600 to 8,000 Cal BC. Um, and this is a time when um, in Britain, the, the, there's a landmass called the Doggerland, which still connects Britain to mainland Europe. So it's a really interesting time to look at questions regarding the movement of people and the exchange of cultures and ideas at this time, which is something that I, I, I personally um, look at. And just to give a bit of background about the Mesolithic, um, specifically in Britain, it's a, it's a time when the landscape would have been quite forested, so quite a lot of birch and pine trees. And there would have been large game around like red deer and elk and aurochs. Um, as well as smaller animals like wolves and wild boar. Um, and quite, quite notably, the, the climate would have been quite temperate, but very much fluctuating between hotter and colder temperatures, which is really important for when we're looking at um, and studying the, the human populations that were living in Britain at the time, who were dealing with these, these fluctuations. Um, so, and, and so in that context, my area specifically at the moment is looking at Mesolithic settlements, uh, where sites essentially that have evidence of post holes and hollows indicating the presence of dwelling structures. So are we talking about like roundhouses? No, before roundhouses. So a bit earlier than roundhouses for, for, for us anyway in time, more like, um, we don't know specifically what they looked like, uh, these structures, because obviously we only have the sort of the, the post holes or the hollows that, that in the ground. Um, but there are interpretations that these might be um, sort of like a, a triangular, like almost like a teepee shape um, oh. or perhaps rounded, but not a roundhouse. So almost like a dome shaped um, structure. So, but because we only have the, the, the post holes, the preservation isn't always amazing, so it's hard to tell the angles of the posts that would have been in these post holes. I get it, yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious about these, um, these structures. I'm, I, I assume they're, they're covered with some sort of vegetation, some grass or branches or something like that? Yeah, so it, it depends on um, the, sort of the geographical region that, that you look at, really. So for me in Britain, um, you, yeah, we're looking at probably skins, perhaps. Um, okay. or, um, or reeds. So a lot of the, the settlements in Britain tend to be associated with, with lake environments or coastal settlements, um, as you see in mainland Europe. And so um, things like vegetation such as reeds and rushes 
would have been quite accessible for the, for the hunter-gatherers living there at the time. So that's another, another option, or perhaps grasses and like turf sort of materials. Um, but all of that is based on these sort of eth ethnographic analogy, really, um, rather than specific evidence, because I, to my knowledge, within Britain anyway, we have no surviving preservation of roofing materials, unfortunately. Mm. Most of them would have been located next to bodies of water that would likely have reeds? Yes, exactly. So um, the site that I, I specifically look at, um, or I'm looking at currently at Star Car, which is in North Yorkshire, um, we know for a fact that it was located on a lake, um, a paleo lake called Lake Flixton. And so uh, we know from the um, pollen record and also from the, the coring that's been done at the site that um, like rushes and reeds and sedges, so all these waterborne or water sort of favourable vegetation would have been um, really present at the site. And we know for a fact that uh, things like nettles as well were, were there as well. So there's lots of things that they could be using, but we just don't know exactly what. Um, and another option would have been bark as well. So um, from the, the obviously the larger trees, like the birch trees that were there, they could have also been using bark as a, as a roofing material as well. You don't get any of them where you've seen where the whole place is burned down. You get ash layers that sometimes have little bits of plant in them. Yeah, no, unfortunately, um, we. I mean, in the later sort of, I think in the in the later Bronze Age, we have evidence of of those nice burning events that kind of do preserve, like you say, all the sort of charred fragments of these these like vegetation. Um, but at Starcar, we the we do have one um, sort of a, a reed mat essentially that was found within the stratigraphy of one of the structures, mm. um, and that was the kind of the preservation is so variable because we are dealing with about 11,000 years old material. So um, yeah, the preservation is variable, meaning that um, vegetation especially is very unlikely to survive. So we have we have this reed matting um, that has been quite convincingly argued um, by the excavators of the site um, that, yeah, this essentially was a, a crisscrossing of reeds that would have been as a matting, like a bedding material that was used in the in the hut uh, to sort of cover the floor and help with potentially things like flint debris from napping and that kind of thing. Um, and it's quite a clear stratigraphic sort of difference between this sort of layer of reeds and then it's with quite a lot of flint material on it. And then below this layer, it's quite sparse in terms of the flint that's there. So it, it, that, that's kind of how it's been argued and interpreted as a bit of a matting, really. Hmm. I'm just curious, because most, most of these places are near uh, water bodies. And coming come from Western Canada, a Western Canadian perspective, because I work a lot with uh, stone circles for teepee rings, mm -hmm. uh, we, we know that bugs, mosquitoes, determine where some of these uh, places are situated. Like they like they like this they like they like they like to put them high areas because it's a lot more breezy that way it keeps the mosquitoes away but they're also close to water water bodies so I'm just kind of curious are they uh, I guess I'm just wondering like it must get pretty buggy in these kind of areas <laughs> yeah I think it's it's so hard to to access those kind of in the sort of the human narratives in this in that way because obviously the the temperature and the climate would have been um, 
a little different to, to now and and because it's a paleo lake we don't um, it no longer exists unfortunately so we can't access the the sort of the the ad accurate um, environment that would have been there during the mesolithic um so mm. i think those kind of i like to think um at that scale completely you know like i like to think of this idea of, of battling with midges and bugs and perhaps them burning different types of um vegetal vegetal uh, sources yeah. essentially to keep these up with these midges and bugs away um but yeah again it's one of those things that's kind of it's it's quite a it's quite a stretch of the archaeological record but we can definitely in our minds think about things like that because i think it makes it more human doesn't it yeah that's right yeah you answered my next question whether to use fire or something like that make smoke to keep some bugs away but that yeah. does make sense yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely, I mean, it's likely. Um, and, and that definitely, again, draws us to a, a very a key question that, that does drive my research, which is, what are they actually using these structures for? Um, mm. So we, as I think, as, as so humans living now, we like to think of structures and, and dwellings as, as houses and homes and people slept in them as we do now. However, that is an assumption. We don't know that. So um, the idea of, of what they were doing inside these structures is, is still largely unknown from this time period. Um, and that's part of my research is to sort of go and tackle these questions about what people were doing in these structures and, and how these structures fit within the daily lives of these hunter-gatherers and were they reserved for particular activities like napping particular um, tools or working particular materials or were they reserved for things like we do now, like sleeping and eating? That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. What are some of the most interesting sites that you have worked on? Well, linking back to the site that I was talking just about just recently at Star Car. So this, I was lucky enough to excavate at this site during its last season of excavation. Um, and I also am working on it now as part of my research, but it would absolutely have to be for me the most interesting just because the exceptional organic preservation at the site meant that there were some astounding discoveries uncovered um, and certainly a lot of people already know about it but just to kind of name some highlights of personal highlights I should say um, so there's things called antler frontlets that were found at this site so these are deer cranium or deer skulls that have been humanly modified to essentially the skull is parts of the skull are kind of cracked off using heat treatment and then these kind of make it almost like a headdress so you've got this almost half skull cap with the antler still attached and they've been interpreted as things um, like a headdress used for hunting rituals perhaps or as one of the uh, the PIs that excavated the site Chantal Canella she's argued that these were actually transformative objects um, that had an agency of their own that were used and they had their own power almost that which was enacted on the wearer during um, potentially hunting or just uh, sort of like these shamanic rituals essentially enabling the wearer to kind of become almost like the deer the deer that these these animals have come from um, and then there were things like barbed points so these are almost like um, harpoons that were used for hunting and fishing which were also made from red deer antler. And then we also have uh, the earliest evidence, 
evidence of carpentry in Britain that was found at the site, as well as the earliest evidence of a dwelling in Britain, which is obviously as we as we were chatting about just then. So um, yeah, I was lucky enough to excavate during its final season, and then now it's the focus of my research um, as I'm analysing the flint tools that were found there. So it's um it's kind of come full circle but also yeah. it's just an exceptional site really so i'm very lucky what was the piece of carpentry that was found was it furniture or architectural it was architectural so these um as i mentioned the site is located on a lake or was located on a lake and the during excavations there they found three wooden platforms so some of them measuring up to about 17 meters in length, um, where these whole trees or, or split timbers essentially were laid down on the lake's edge to build a kind of platform for people to, to potentially work on or deposit things in or um, maybe used as almost like a, a, a moor for sort of for boats that are going off on the lake. Perhaps we don't know the function specifically, but there were three of them there during this this the the site's occupation, which was roughly about 800 years. So um, people liked building them and they built them um, a lot. So they're, they're incredibly, um, incredibly skilled carpentry uh, as well, just because the, the way that obviously you're felling these timbers and you're felling these huge trees and then carrying them, you know, quite away to the water's edge. Um, so clearly there was something interesting and, and, and symbolic about that in some way. Oh. What are the main methods that you use to investigate the past? So I use, as I mentioned, I look at the, the flint tools and I use microware analysis. And this is a microscopic technique which identifies if a flint is used and also on what material. Um, and then I use microware alongside geographical information systems, so GIS for short, and um, I use both of these techniques pre predominantly to explore how the structures at Star Car were used by the hunter-gatherers that, that built them. I, I'm curious, the flint, is there, is there, you guys were able to identify, is there a lot of flint around in the vicinity or does it come from a quarry site somewhere or is this something they just gathered on the rivers or streams? So there are... I think three there are three um, raw material sources that were posited for Star Car. So there's glacial till flint that was coming from quite locally within the site. Um, and there was coastal flint. So the coast um, wasn't too far away and was definitely in sort of, um, I guess, commutable distance um, for a hunter-gatherer. Um, and then also river flint. So there are sort of quite variable uh, source of raw materials that were used. And there's some quite colourful flint uh, that we found as well. So some nice oranges and kind of uh, a darker red, red and black flint as well. So it's quite interesting. I'm just, I'm just wondering, um, just um, for the audience, if you could explain more about uh, what microware is. Yeah. Just, just, for the, just for those who don't, who don't know what that is. Yeah, of course. So microware is um, essentially using different types of microscopy. So using a microscope to analyze different sort of levels on the flint. So you go sort of from, um, from you look at the flint from a naked eye 
And then from that, you look at what we would call a low power approach using low magnifications on the, on the microscope. And this low power approach, really you're looking at the types of edge removals on the flint. So um, is the tool actually, does it look like it's been used? So removals from use, um, that's kind of yeah, what you're looking at with the low power. And you're also looking at things like edge rounding. So if a flint has been used, you will also, with some materials, you will see some kind of rounding um, of, of the flint's edge. And then once you've looked at it from a low power perspective, we then go to a high power perspective, which is using higher magnifications, usually between 50 and 200 times magnification. And this is where we start looking at more diagnostic um, traces or diagnostic features on the flint. So we're looking at things like striations, so certain materials that have been worked will leave striated um, marks on the flint's edge. And then also the key thing that we're looking at is polish. And this polish is particular to each different type of material and also the sort of the distribution of the polish on the flint edge is very diagnostic of the motion of use as well. So that's what we're kind of looking at as you go through the different stages of microware analysis. Um, and we also can tell things like if the tool was hafted, so if the tool was placed into a handle to allow for more eff efficient use, we can also tell that um, from microware analysis as well, but it all relies on a very um, specific and the kind of correct preservational context and also the right recovery methods as well. They're really important for, for preserving the flint edge when we're, when we're looking at microware. So the main thing you're looking for is to find out what were the tools used for, how were they used, how much they were used, this sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. So we're looking at um, sort of, yeah, what it was used on or what it was used for. So looking at, we would call it the contact material, but essentially which materials were worked with that tool. So is it plant? Is it hide? Is it meat? Is it bone? Is it antler? And each of these materials has a very different type of wear on the flint's edge. And from that and from piecing different parts together, we can start looking at what the tool was potentially used for. But as with most sciences, I would say it is, um, or it's good to mention that it is an interpretive science. So it's based on the analyst and their own interpretation and what they're seeing through the lens of the microscope. Um, but also um, using experimental archaeology as a sort of an, um, for a reference collection to allow you to interpret the archaeological polish that you're seeing. Um, and Microware is, is, has got a vast potential for interpretation, which is why I, I personally am a huge flag bearer for it, as you, as you probably can tell. Um, but also, yeah, I think stone tools are quite often written off as a bit boring, as a bit dull and a bit old hat. You know, we've been there, we've done that, we get it. However, microware for me has so much potential. So you can look at things like the cultural biography of each individual tool. So we're looking at things like um, how it was made, how it was used, how it was potentially curated and uh, maintained during its use. 
and then also its deposition. And when used in conjunction with other typological assessments and also things like refitting, we can see this full life history of each tool, which is such a unique and, and rich insight that I think you rarely get from, from many other methods. Um, and also, as I've mentioned, things like plants are really quite rarely preserved in prehistory, whereas with, through microware, we've been able to completely rewrite our understanding of these hunter-gatherer lifeways because we're now able to access um, that, that these hunter-gatherers were actually working and, and processing plants, and we were able to access, access that insight through microware. Um, so it's it's quite the potential for it changing our our assumptions as well is huge. So things like scrapers, we would assume it to be a scraper for scraping things like hide. However, from microware, we know that that's not always the case. So I think it makes us better archaeologists to not trust our assumptions anyway. Um, but microware for me, yeah, has that has that real breadth of potential for for changing our perceptions. Before you can analyze the artifacts, I guess you need to produce and essentially use replicas of the artifacts that you've studied in order to produce similar useware on them. What does this involve? Yeah, exactly right. So we um, we usually have to, as you say, replicate um, or at least try and get an understanding of the types of uh, where that we might be seeing archaeologically. So experimental archaeology is one of the key uh, tools that we use to have an idea about what we're looking at from the useware perspective. So it's an important part of my research specifically because I need the reference material to help me identify these different signatures from the different materials that I was talking about. So uh, at York and at the Year Centre, we undertake our own experiments uh, which replicate these different types of activities that may have been undertaken at Star Calf. And this is specifically rooted in our understanding of things like the faunal remains that have been found, the paleo-environmental context, so what was, in, what was in the environment, what types of plants, what types of trees and, and, and foods, for example. Um, and these all tie into our are then, are then approach to the experimental archaeology and what types of materials we then work um, and, and process so we can get a good gauge of what we might be seeing from the archaeological materials. So an example of what we've been doing recently, we've been looking at um, extracting plant fibres from plant materials, from things like nettle, for example. Um, and we also have been scraping animal hides to prepare them for tanning. Um, and all these things then feed into um, the, the microware because we take each uh, tool that we've used in the year center and we record things like how long we've been using it for and also um, how successful it was. You know, was it actually a useful tool to use at, for that material? And then from this, I take the tools, I give them a really good clean, and then I use these reference collection tools that were produced at the Year Centre in um, my sort of my, my microware analysis. So I'm comparing the known, so what we what tools would have been used for a known material and a known amount of time. I compare those to the unknown archaeological material, and then by using a kind of spot the difference method. 
I can try and, and, and interpret and identify the types of materials that the archaeological tool may have been used on. So the, the experimental archaeology is fundamental to, um, yeah, to, to the microware analysis. So I'm curious when you guys were when you start doing experimental archaeology, do you have somebody who actually have a um, a good idea on how to start? Like how they would do tanning, like scraping hides, uh, some sort of a, a tradesperson or instructor. So we we have a mixture um, of of I guess methods of uh, I guess research really. I mean we we do a lot of reading. We're quite we're quite lucky in the sense that experimental archaeology is a really it's a growing field, but it also has quite a, a significant past. And so there's quite a lot of papers that may be a, a little bit harder to find than, than you'd like. But there are papers out there that talk about different tanning techniques. Um, and, and we have to then obviously filter through that and think about what would be available in the Mesolithic. So um, we so some of it's rooted through uh, what we've done from our own research. And then sometimes if we are finding something particularly tricky or we're finding that um, we're not sure how to proceed with a certain method or a certain experiment, we will also um, contact craftspeople. And we're really keen on getting craftspeople involved in a lot of what we do because obviously their practice, their life, is is work you know working around these particular materials and it's a kind of knowledge and expertise that we couldn't dream of, of having ourselves um having only you know done it for for however many years so for us it's a mixture of the two but but like i said we do really um draw upon and hopefully have a two-way exchange really with craftspeople we find that they really enjoy working with things that are archaeologically sort of um, present perhaps and then also obviously we get a lot from working with them and, and the knowledge that they have. How does your understanding of archaeological tools change by using the experimental tools? Yeah so this like I said it, it's it's a really um, it, it's it's such a fundamental relationship between the archaeology and the experimental. Um, from a I guess more more scientific perspective the the experimental tools give us a great idea about things like duration of use. So on the archaeological tool, obviously, you could never dream about gauging how long they were these tools were used for because of how long they've been in the ground and the dulling potentially of the polish and things like that. So for us, the, the experimental tools are great because we're able to see if some polishes develop more quickly than others, which gives us, again, this this perspective of the materials themselves and how each material acts differently and how each different motion of use as well changes the way that this material is responding to the tool. Um, so you get a perspective of the materiality of the tools themselves and how there is this kind of interplay between the tool acting on the material and then the material acting back a bit on the tool. Um, which is a really unique perspective that obviously the archaeological tools could never tell you. Um, and as I mentioned before, there are things that you can potentially consider, not necessarily prove, but certainly consider about the archaeological record um, that, that, yeah, you, you can never prove that it's really important to think about those different life perspectives and the different ways that these people were, were living their lives and, and how they were using these, these items and artifacts that we find. What were some of the most interesting results that you've learned from your research? So we've actually just finished, um, so hot off the press, 
um, work on um, on Istarkar. Again, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's an amazing site and um, it has a lot of potential. Um, and, and certainly what's been done already has only just kind of opened the doors really of all the other avenues that you can explore. Um, but we've so we've been looking at some beads that were found at the site. So 29 shale beads were found. Um, and these are sort of minerally, um, mineral stone essentially. And these have been shaped um, or have collected from the coast in, in sort of pre-shaped bead forms. And then they've been taken to star car and perforated. So they've been drilled and a hole has been put into them. And these, um, so the beads have been found in spatial association with things called flint awls or mesh de foray specifically. Um, which are, in, 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 simplest, in simple terms, they're drill bits. Um, and so we wanted to explore this association further. And from the experimental work that has been undertaken at the Year Centre, and this has been primarily done by Dr. Andy Needham and myself, we found that one all, so just one of these um, flint drill bits, can be used to produce roughly 20 shale beads. And it's still functional and it's there's not really any serious edge damage or blunting of the tip. So we've produced 20 shale beads and it's still pretty fresh. And wow. we've taken it even further and we've tested this one all um, and we've been able to even make it or even after producing 30 beads, it's still really effective and still not particularly blunted. So. From our initial work, from the microware analysis that also has been undertaken by Dr. Amy Little, we have at least three alls that show some traces of mineral or shale working. So actually, from this little snapshot, we've actually, we, we believe that there were more beads produced at the site because we have a number of alls that show mineral use or use on shale, and we have 29 shale beads which one of those ores could have easily produced by itself. So essentially from this microware, we can begin to tease out interpretations about these beads. So perhaps if there were more produced at the site, um, then were they transported away or were they maybe deposited in the lake and so weren't preserved as well? Um, and we can begin to access these sort of I guess, more cosmological and, and symbolic relationships between the people and the materials at this site, which I think is really exciting. And that's all from the experimental um, stuff that we've been doing at the Year Centre. So I'm curious, can you explain to me how you guys integrate the temporal and spatial analysis of flint microwave patterns? I mean, how did you use, uh, especially the spatial analysis part? Yeah, so... With microware, obviously, um, we are looking at one tool in isolation each time you're doing your analysis. And so for, for us, the spatial um, sort of side of things is really important because we can then collate all the microware data and we can look at um, how these are associated with different areas of the site. So each tool, when it was excavated at Star Car, was um, recorded and it has 3D coordinates for its location, which is obviously really important for when you're looking at the spatial distributions of these different these different tools. And um, and so yeah, from the microware we've collated all the data, we can then start seeing whether there's a patterning in certain uses of materials. 
And this is really important for the structures, of course, where we might be seeing that there are certain activities that are preferentially undertaken within the structures versus what's been undertaken outside or just sort of in the surrounding areas of the structure. Um, and so we're using GIS um, to do exactly that, collating the data and then looking at it and, and exploring these spatial patterns in tool use, essentially. Hmm. Now, now I'm just going back to um, my earlier thought because um, Birch was mentioned and I know uh, here in North America and I know when I was working in Siberia, Birch is used a lot to make uh, various items. And so, and, uh, and it appears you guys are experimenting on the use of Birch. So what have you guys learned from that so far? Yeah, so Birch is, um, as, yeah, as I'm sure you know, incredibly versatile and there are yeah. many different properties to Birch that can be harnessed. Um, and I think our, our experimental work that we've done so far hasn't really scratched the surface even of what, of what, we, what Birch, I guess, has to offer. Um, I mean, at Starcar, we found Birch Bark Roll preserved. Um, and so we've had one of our, our team members at the Year Centre, Andy Langley, he did a, uh, his, his, a whole research project on uh, birch bark tar production. Um, and so from these birch bark rolls, exploring from the archaeological record, what, what were they used for? Um, and obviously one of those potential uses is for birch bark tar production. So he was looking at um, the ins and outs and the scientific uh, methods that can be used to uh, explore the production of yeah, birch bark tar. Um, and we've also looked a little bit from the microware perspective as well as, as um, the traces that we get from debarking birch. But it's a good and, and a significant caveat that I need to mention is that birch from the UK is not, no, birch from the UK now is really not that accurate for the Mesolithic, because we believe that in the Mesolithic, the birch, the, the birch bark would have been a lot thicker. Um, and certainly from the birch bark that we've found at Star Car, it does seem to be thicker than what we would find here now. So a lot of the birch bark that we end up using is from, from overseas, essentially, and it's not from the UK. So um, yeah, it's, it's challenging, I think, to work with birch because we don't have the raw material in its abundant form anymore within the UK. Um, but we're hoping to do more on birch for sure. Cause it like, you, like, as we've been saying, it's a versatile material for sure. What is the difference between experimental archeology span and experiential archeology? span I think it's quite subjective, but I personally, from my experiences would say that experiential archeology span is more about building a skill set, a sort of quite self-educational um, and, and looking at individual activities and learning about how to do particular activities yourself, which is so valuable and, and acts as a, as, a, as a preset and a really important aspect of experimental archaeology. But our experimental archaeology is more about the um, sort of hypothesis. So you're setting out with a hypothesis. You're, you've got particular methods that you want to test. You've got controls. You have really clear aims. Um, and you also have particular parameters and an academic context. So 
um, it's it's more about it's the rooted in the a, a bit more of a scientific approach to testing a, a hypothesis, um, whereas as I mentioned, the experiential is about how you're experiencing a particular skill or an activity, um, and a lot more about educating your own skill set and your yourself. In addition to your research, you also helped to run the Year Center. Can you tell us a little bit about this? What is the Year Center? What are the objectives of the center? Yeah, absolutely. So the Year Center is the um, it's an acronym for the York Experimental Archaeological Research Center, and it's an outdoor experimental archaeology sort of workspace that's located on the York University campus, and its objectives are really for enabling students to experience this sort of first-hand perspective of what it would have been like to craft objects in the past using traditional techniques, and some of which obviously I've mentioned, um, and also to provide a space where both undergraduate and postgraduate students are taught about designing and implementing experiments and how to use the, a real range of scientific methods to document them. Um, and essentially supporting student and staff research as well, as, as obviously you've heard from a lot of what I've had to say. Um, and, and we also um, kind of, and, and this is happening more and more, we're hoping to sort of branch out more with this, but we do a lot of public outreach as well, both public in terms of those outside of the university, but also those within the university that don't study archaeology. <laughs> Can you tell us about the history of the centre? Yeah, so the the centre was an idea from Dr Amy Little, who I mentioned um, earlier, who does um, microware analysis as well. And she established the centre in 2015 during her postdoctoral work at the University of York. And she was essentially looking for a space to um, carry out experiments on campus. And the university estates team were really uh, great and they gave her permission to use this sheltered wood space or woodland mm -hmm. space on campus. And then the Department of Archaeology gained permission for archaeology students to then use this space for actualistic experiments based on material culture studies. And by actualistic, I mean based on um, how we would imagine it to be in the past. So we are not sort of experimenting for experiment's sake we are trying to replicate um and and sort of mirror what we think would have happened in the past and the methods that were used so it was initially run to sort of focus on prehistoric experimental projects and as i'm sure you probably guessed star car was a big sort of um a, a big drive for that um and then um from that um and looking at some of the sort of manufacturing processes behind some of the materials that were found at Star Car, like the uh, the antler frontlet headdresses that I was talking about, and also some of the shale beads as well. Um, that was sort of the beginnings of the Year Centre, but since then, um, the centre has seen a lot more diversity in the types of experiments it's been running. So. Although I look at the Mesolithic, we have researchers looking at Viking metal and bone working, as well as things like Paleolithic art um, and engraved limestone slabs from the Paleolithic as well. So we have a real diversity in there, which is great. Um, and the, the sort of the activities specifically are very tactile. 
Um, and there is a vast number of sort of natural resources that I, as, I, as I'm sure you've guessed from my, my goings on, um, that we have at around the, the, the site as well. So we've got a nice area of woodland um, where we have things like horse chestnut and hawthorn that we can look at and then raw materials like nettles and bark and fungi and firewood. And so lots of different things that we can access really locally that we can use in our experiments. Um, and we also have a really nice relationship with local and national suppliers. Um, so they're, they, we sort of, um, if we can't harness it or get it locally, we will also um, look at national suppliers to see if we can get uh, things like antler, for example. We don't get many red deer in North Yorkshire. Um, so we, we have to look further afield for that. Um, so yeah, we have a, a nice diversity really in the stuff that we do there. Um, and a, and a great team as well. Do you guys also look into like doing other things that are um, experimental archaeology of other items that not necessarily relate to Star Car? Like, say, for instance, where I'm from, uh, bison is used a lot here. So, you know, and I know there's some experiments on uh, uh, how to use different parts of the bison bone and all that stuff. So I'm just wondering if you guys do something like that too, like, not like that's not necessarily related to Star Car. Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, although Star Car was the sort of starting point for the Year Centre, it's absolutely not exclusively what we do at all. Um, and we have, as I mentioned, uh, a Viking metal and bone working specialist who did a lot of work at the site, um, at the centre. And uh, we look at, uh, and, that, and, that, and, he, and he was looking at um, casting, metal casting from the Viking period. And we also have, as I mentioned, also have people looking at textiles. So medieval silk, for example, we have a researcher working with us at the moment, uh, Greta Pepper, and she's looking at silks from the, from the medieval, medieval period. And she's spinning um, and producing her own silk, which is really interesting. So we have a really sort of versatile and wide ranging um, research base. And we're really lucky because I think as years go by, we get an even larger and, and more diverse group of people working at the Year Centre, which makes it an even nicer place to be and, and also an incredibly fascinating place to be. What types of events does the centre hold? So we have short term uh, experiments. So the ones that are currently ongoing, which are related to undergraduate, masters and PhD level experiments. And at this time of year, typically, we would have master students undertaking their experimental projects at the Year Centre. So we've, as I've mentioned, we've had researchers look at birch bark, birch bark tar production and things like non-ferrous metalworking and also Anglo-Saxon cider production methods um, as a sort of a glimpse and a snapshot of some of the master's work. Um, and then we also have more long-term experiments. So we have links with the bioarchaeology group um, on who are also based on campus, who are in the department. And we have got a collaboration with them looking at how depositional con conditions impact the preservation of organic residues on pottery. And that experiment lasted actually over a year. So we have a, a mixture of short and long term experiments, as well as um, a, a, re a recent and, a, and really exciting collaboration with Ray Mears. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with him, um, but he's quite big in the UK and he is a sort of an outdoor, I guess, 
explorer and um, he works really closely with the department and he's done a lot of work with um, indigenous communities but also essentially on bushcraft as well um, and he actually came to the year centre and um, op officially opened it last summer um, but he also offers a wealth of experience and knowledge about material culture across the world offering these really unique insights essentially on understanding these archaeological artifacts um, and then we also have some really cool things like tv filming um, so you guys will probably have seen from the uh, website the year center website that we have a mesolithic hut reconstruction at the site or at the center and that was built by the smithsonian te television channel um, as part of their documentary series called Mystic Britain. And uh, they had a really, it was a really cool project. They wanted to build a Mesolithic hut with tools and materials that would have been available at the time. And they had two uh, really great prehistoric construction specialists um, called Deirdrick and Leo. And they came to build the Mesolithic hut in a weekend, which was incredible. Um, and we've also had TV filming in the series Digging Up Britain's Past, and we had a Neolithic cheese making section and a Viking antler comb making section that were both used and, and filmed at the Year Centre. So um, yeah, we've we've got a very diverse range of projects, and then as I mentioned, that also ties in with outreach, which we are really keen on because we really want to share our research with the local community and also the public. So we do a lot of work with primary school groups and local museums, um, and also widening participation workshops with prospective undergraduate students as well. So um, yeah, and the, the, the team that we have, we cover all of that, all of that. So it's, it's always busy, but it's really exciting. Okay, you got me stuck on Neolithic cheese making. <laughs> <laughs> what does it taste like? I, I actually haven't been fortunate or unfortunate enough, I guess, whichever way you look at it, to try it. It, it looks like cottage cheese. If you, <laughs> yeah, so it's quite lumpy. <laughs> um, but I am told that it does taste like cheese and, it, and it's not as bad as you would think. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is there a video of that? I'm just curious. I, there, there is. I think if you put Neolithic cheese making and it was filmed uh, or the, the lecturer that was involved was called Penny Bickle, B-I-C-K-L-E. And she she's great and she has done lots of research on Neolithic cheese and but she does it from a very scientific and um, isotopic uh, background. So, yeah, she, I, I would imagine you'll find it quite easily. I yeah I found it. <laughs> I'm gonna spend, I'm probably gonna spend the day watching this. <laughs> I know you answered this a lot already, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. So, uh, can you tell us about some of the previous projects run by the Year Center? Maybe some of the highlights or what you think are some of the most interesting important projects. So, uh, you already yeah. mentioned a lot of this already. No, I well, I the great thing about the Year Center is that we actually in its time we've done a lot so I have I have so many examples I can go on for days a really exciting project that was recently published in the Atlantic was about aceramic water boiling so this also ties in with our work on the Mesolithic so a time when they wouldn't have had ceramics or ceramic technology how do you go about boiling water or cooking essentially so a master's group 
of experimental archaeology uh, design and practice module uh, were faced with this question and the objective was which aceramic method indirect or direct heating are the most effective and durable for boiling water using animal hide or stomach as a container so each group tested a different proposed method so one was one of them was looking at heated rock to boil water inside a deer hide Another was looking at heating deer hide directly over a fire. Another was looking at heating animal stomach directly over a fire. And a final group was looking at digging down into the ground and placing hot stones into a line into a clay lined trench. And these were all ideas that the students came up with themselves after having um, doing some research and having a read of papers online. So, um, and specifically one of the key papers that they looked at was by John Speth in 2015, titled, When Did Humans Learn to Boil? And the paper speculated stone boiling using bark or hide containers as a method. So these students, the master students were faced with this, they took it on and the results, I'm sure you're all sort of waiting in anticipation. Mm -hmm. Um, were that stone boiling in hide worked and the water did actually come to boiling temperature. Um, the second, the second uh, method of heating the deer hide over the fire wasn't as successful. The hide was singed but undamaged, but the water only went to 60 degrees after four hours. So not as successful for boiling it. Yeah. And um, the other two didn't unfortunately boil water either. So the overall results of that were the stone boiling was obviously the most effective um, and most efficient method over the, over the, the um, other methods. And it saved on time and fuel. And, uh, and it was an interesting for observation for the master students because I think they were able to see the beginning all the way through to the end of the experiment. And they designed it all themselves. So I think it was really uh, fulfilling for them to see that progression from start to finish but also that the, they actually got genuinely interesting and insightful results that then were published. So um, really interesting and, and yeah, actually valuable. So it's, it's really nice. And I think a key example of what the Year Centre can, can do and what it can produce. I'm just glad you guys found that stone boiling is more successful because that's my specialty. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I look at a fire broken rock a lot. I, I, I look at hearse a lot and I look at stone boiling a lot. We also, um, in the article also, they got in contact with John Speth. And so we now have a, a kind of communication system up and running with John Speth, which is really cool because he was kind of a bit of a pioneer with his research yeah. looking into these methods. So yeah, it's, it's a really exciting avenues, isn't it, where, you, where your research can take you? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited just hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> What sorts of tasks and responsibilities are involved in running the centre? Quite uh, a varied, as you can imagine, with such a varied, um, sort of diverse range of, of experiments that we run. So we've got Dr Amy Little, who's the director, um, who oversees the general running and, and um, I guess, overseeing the really important key things about what the year centre is achieving and, and who it's working with. And then Dr Andy Needham is co-director. And then we also have Dr. Gareth Perry, Andy Langley, who I mentioned, Dr. Anita Radini, myself, and also a master's student, Jess Cousin, who works on the blog. So there's a whole team of us that 
run the year centre with um, different groups essentially needing the centre throughout the year for different things. So each one of us takes on a different responsibility. And um, we also work as a team when it comes to having an annual tidy and clearing of the space, um, which although we like to let nature take its course as much as possible, um, obviously for health and safety reasons, we do have to keep it tidy-ish um, and without too many trip hazards. And um, we also have active social media pages. So as I mentioned, um, the other Jess, she does vlogs for the year center and then um, we all chip in and and do the twitter facebook and instagram accounts as well um so we can communicate to non-academic audiences because like i said that's a really important part of what we do um, is making sure that the work that we do is accessible um and and is communicated to people that aren't just within the academic bubble so i presume you guys have a lot of youtube videos uploaded so youtube is actually one of our um we haven't got that many videos uh, because a lot of the research uh, when we're doing it, um, it is hoping we're hoping to publish it. So there's that. Obviously, you don't want to to broadcast mm -hmm. too much before you publish it. Um, but yeah, we, we YouTube tends to be reserved for more sort of um, some of the interviews that we might do with um, the team. So the people that, that we that help run the centre. Um, and also through some of the people that we work with. But generally, yeah, we don't actually do that much filming. Um, maybe we should do, do it more after you've mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you got my curiosity peak. I, I probably be spending hours <laughs> watching this. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that do, they are very influenced by visual media, particularly if they're not archeologists. And they don't, maybe they don't want to read an article, but if there's videos, after it's published, you know, they might go, oh, that's interesting. What's, what's going on over there? And maybe it's a good form of dissemination to a different, through a different media. Yeah, yeah I agree with you, Moritz. Obviously, I agree with you on that. So. Yeah, it's, I think it's something that, I mean, we try to do a lot of the visual stuff through our social media. Um, yeah. But I think, um, yeah, video... The, the, I think the, the challenge with video is making sure, or filming, is making sure that um, when you're doing the experiments, I mean, obviously the experiments last for hours, but actually the, probably the interesting parts only happen every so often in terms of the visual sort of filming of it. So, yeah, I guess part of the battle is, is trying to isolate which bits you need to record rather than just recording the whole, you know, whole day experiment, which would be pretty mm. tedious to, to edit. I think that's a thing for all of archaeology that when people watch documentaries on the Discovery Channel or Nat Geo, they see all the highlights. They say, oh, look, that person just found a nice pot or, oh, he just excavated a bit of a, a wooden wall or she just found out something really interesting in the laboratory. What they don't show is that for each of those interesting things, there was probably several days of someone sifting through sand or looking at a microscope for weeks on end. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't get all that massive amount of stuff. So I think it, some people don't realize that there is that much sort of waiting time and repetitive until something actually interesting occurs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even with even when you're working at a really cool place, yeah, like like the Year Centre, I think we still, a lot of what we do, you know, we have hypotheses and we have, 
really planned out experiments but as anything it can still take sort of um, unexpected turns or things don't maybe pan out as, as well as you thought they would in, in theory and they don't do very well in practice so I think a lot of the experiment is yeah you're trying things out for the first time and then you have to maybe recalibrate start again do something differently um and and yeah like you say it wouldn't make particularly interesting uh filming yeah. <laughs> are there any uh, specific plans for the future like upcoming events or experiments things that the organizer would like to become more involved with so um we're on doing ongoing outreach with local communities. I mean, obviously at the moment it's slightly harder because of the, the current situation that we all find ourselves in. Um, so there are plans to work with SASH, which is a local um, charity that prevents youth homelessness. So we have um, a, an upcoming project, hopefully that we'll be able to undertake with them. Um, and we also, um, I'm actually running or hoping to run in the future um, a crafting communities day so this is a university-wide crafting day that will be opened to all departments because this is the first year that we've run it um, so it will be open to just people within the university for now um, and we're the hope with that is to help improve the well-being um, of the research community at York by by just essentially having some tactile activities um, and the hope with that is that when we when we're able to run it, uh, maybe next next summer, if it's a success, well, we would love to be able to open that to the public as well. Um, and then we also have some really cool PhD researchers that have started recently. Um, like I said, Greta Pepper, she looks at medieval silk textile production, um, and so her project will be has started and is ongoing. And so you'll be hearing a lot more about her research as well. Um, but we yeah we have we have plans for the master's courses and the undergraduate courses as well which if you keep an eye on our social media you will be you'll be hearing about um and like i said we've got a few things uh in the in the works regarding publication as well so we'll definitely be be letting you know when that happens too do you have any advice for undergraduate students who might be thinking about pursuing a career or who might be thinking about pursuing research in experimental archaeology? Any training or courses or experience that would be good to get? I think my my best advice would be to just read and watch videos as widely as you can. Um, I think especially during the current time it's it's hard to have um, or hard to access courses and they courses can be quite expensive um, and I think the best way and certainly from our collective experience as a year centre team a lot of what we have, what we know now and what we've learned is from just trying to absorb as much as possible from the things that we're reading and, and watching. And as we mentioned, the, the, you know, YouTube is a huge resource for craft and for experimental archaeology. Um, and although there's variable sort of, sort of types of archaeology out there, you know, some of it's quite experiential, which is probably the best way to mm -hmm. expand your knowledge and your, your experience. And then if you are able to have a have a try at home, you know, like nettle, nettle processing. There are loads of videos online about how to process nettles to get fiber to make cordage or string. And, you know, have a go at home because nettles are everywhere, <laughs> generally, um, if you're anything like me and you have an unkempt garden. Um, and 
you know, that, that is that kind of thing that it's a tactile activity that you can do and it is accessible to everyone really. Um, and you don't need that much to do it. You don't need that much money. You know, you don't need anything expensive. So yeah, I would say go and explore the, the landscape and the environment around you, see what you can find and see what you can make. And yeah, have a look at, have a look at what's online and obviously follow the year center. <laughs> <laughs> I think that experiential archaeology does play a large role in how we actually come up with research questions, whether they're experimental archaeology or, or more traditional lines of research. Because in order to be able to ask a question, we actually need to know most of the answer already. And I think when people go to like archaeological parks or even just try out things at home, they start to come up with the questions. I wonder how would that have worked? And from there, they actually come up with an experiment. But it might not be obvious that there is a question to even be asked until they've tried out a few things. I know that some people will view experiential archaeology as something very distinct from experimental, but I think that it's actually something that is necessary before you do experimental work in order to actually have an idea of how it works and what is the question. I totally agree because I, I did experimental archaeology when it comes to like stone boiling so once i once i did it myself i have a better understanding how how it's been done and same with flint napping i have a when i find a lot of debitage i i have a better understanding of where certain pieces have come from they're they're in a stone manufacturing stone tool manufacturing process so i find experimental archaeology has a lot of value especially uh, especially what i do in terms of a crm yeah i mean i think I, I completely would agree with both of you. It, the, the experience and the, the experiential is, is vital. And I think it's, it's so important for inspiring and motivating, like you were saying, Otis, these research questions that you may not know even existed before. I would agree with you, experiential archaeology and you know even being at places like the Year Centre, it does incredible things to your thinking processes and your your imagination really and 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 working with these materials in a tactile way does inspire a lot of questions that you didn't like you say you didn't realize you had before so um i would i would wholeheartedly agree with you on that for sure well thanks for talking with us today about your research and about the center it's all very interesting to hear about well thank you for having me and thank you both for being such great hosts it's been really really fun thank you jess i really enjoyed this thank you have a nice day. Eat it. And you. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to the Archaeocafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archaeocafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, according to most archaeological sites, our ancestors were all skeletons who lived underground.